Text messages, tweets, DMs, and email. This is how the majority of us in this room or watching online communicate with people today. Outside of face-to-face interactions, of course. Now, this is obviously a much more recent phenomenon. For the vast majority of history, correspondence has occurred through the form of written letter. And throughout time, there have been a handful of letters that have had a dramatic impact. Here's a few examples. A letter from an 11-year-old girl prompted Abraham Lincoln to grow a beard. It seems a bit trivial, sure, but Abraham Lincoln's beard might be the most famous beard in American history. In her letter, she told Lincoln that his face was too skinny and growing a beard might improve his presidential prospects. Who knows? A letter from a mother to her son helped, the seal, helped to seal the right for women to vote in 1920 as Tennessee Representative Harry Byrne surprised his colleagues by voting yes, breaking what would have been a tie and thus a failed vote. Up until the moment of that vote, Byrne had been a vocal opponent to the suffrage movement. When civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed in Birmingham, Alabama for participating in a march without a permit, he spent the week that he was locked up formulating a response to criticism from local clergy who were saying that protests weren't the answer. He had composed what would become known as the letter from a Birmingham jail that reinforced reinforced the need for public demonstrations against segregation. It was viewed as a rallying cry for activism during a crucial period in history, and it serves today as documentation of the civil rights movement itself. Letters can have a lasting impact. Well, this morning we're starting a new sermon series that will look at seven letters that were written to to seven of the early churches. These letters are found in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And as John wrote in the newsletter this week, the the book of Revelation has fascinated readers throughout the centuries. It's written in a style that's all its own, and, and the book has inspired a wide variety of interpretations. And when you read it, you can understand why. It's filled with vivid imagery and confusing language. It can be a very difficult book to understand. But in the early chapters of Revelation, there's a relatively straightforward section, chapters 2 and 3, where we have this collection of letters to seven churches in the ancient world. The author, most likely the Apostle John, wrote these letters to explain God's will and purpose for these churches. Filled with advice, including both encouragement and correction, John spoke plainly, accusing some of the churches of moral compromise, others of being too preoccupied with wealth, and a few of outright immorality. Yet there were others that were praised for their faithfulness to God, despite direct opposition. The choice, John said, was between compromise and faithfulness, between resisting or giving into the pressures of the surrounding culture. Prove faithful, he promised these gatherings of believers, and God will reward you. And so over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to look at John's advice to these churches, which ends up being strikingly relevant to us over 2,000 years later. For the most part, the seven letters are similarly structured in their content. 
They feature a commendation, what the church is doing well. They feature a condemnation and a correction. I'm going to highlight these three C's as we work our way through the first letter this morning, as we look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and the letter to the church in Ephesus. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the first couple of sentences, the sender and the receiver of the letter are identified. While Revelation was penned by the apostle John, John identifies the author as the letter as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's referring to Jesus, the head of the church. And we have two indications on who the letter is written to in verses 1 and 7. First, it says it's written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The word angel here in this circumstance is better translated as messenger. So John is probably referring to the pastor or the key leaders of the church in Ephesus. But in verse 7, we're also told that the message isn't just for the church in Ephesus. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this message... Is a message for the global church today. Verses 2 through 6 give the commendation, the condemnation, and the correction. Starting in verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, before we get into the specifics of this, I think it's important to notice that the feedback starts with the positive. Now, we'll see in some of the other letters that there are circumstances in which there is nothing good to be said. But in this particular circumstance, the letter begins by affirming what the church has done well. We live in a culture where, for the most part, we are judged more heavily by the mistakes that we've made. Now, don't get me wrong. Honest feedback, constructive criticism are important, and we need to be able to hear and receive that feedback in order to continually improve. This is true not just in our work, but in our relationships as well. But imagine if the only feedback you received were negative. I imagine one might begin to wonder if they were doing 
anything right. I participate regularly in songwriting groups where at least once a month we share songs that we're working with, uh, that we're working on. And we rely on one another to provide feedback. One, uh, in these groups, we try to maintain a healthy balance of encouragement and things to work on. One without the other either inflates the ego and doesn't encourage growth, or it tramples creativity and could lead to somebody just giving up. So in this group, we try to provide both aspects of feedback. And that's what we see in this letter. The letter starts by commending the church in Ephesus, by giving affirmation on what they've done well. Particularly, hard work, perseverance, protecting the church from false teachers. Verse 6 names more specifically this group of outside influencers. It says in verse 6, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a heretical Christian sect, um, but they're not identifiable with certainty from other New Testament or extra-biblical evidence. Scholars differ on their understanding of this particular group. Some think they were followers of Nicholas, uh, who's referred to in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 6, but we're not fully sure of this. We're also not fully sure what their specific heresy was. But the church in Ephesus took a strong stand against this heresy, and they are commended for doing so. Verse 3 summarizes their perseverance. It says they endured. They had not grown weary of protecting the church from false teaching. But things were not as they should be. You see, Ephesus was orthodox in theology and practice, yet something was missing which, if not corrected, would ruin their light-bearing capacity. And so the commendation is followed then by the condemnation. Verses 3 and 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The church in Ephesus, from all outward appearances, was a very spiritual church. For it was certainly a church that was active in the work of God, as as we've heard in the encouragement. They toiled for the Lord. They endured much. They were doctrinally sound and took a strong stand against false teachers. Nevertheless, something was wrong. You see, despite the fact they believed with their minds the right things, and they did the right things, they did so with cold, unloving hearts. Now, we don't know for sure if they were lacking in love for Jesus or lacking in love for one another or their community. More than likely, it was a mix of circumstances. See, as a church, they became so preoccupied with sound doctrine that they lost their love for God and for one another. They lost the very essence of their faith while only maintaining the form. There's a very important lesson in this message for God's people in any period of history. But the message here is particularly important for our performance-oriented society. 
It's the warning that we, if we are not ever so careful, we can lose our spiritual vitality, our spiritual witness, and slip into mere orthodox routine. How many stories have you heard about people leaving the church because they grew up, all that they knew about their faith was a list of do-nots and to-dos? How many people do you know that are currently deconstructing their faith because the capital C church, like the church in Ephesus, has failed to love others? I have a handful of close friends who have fully walked away from the church because of this reality. They've witnessed communities of faith become more infatuated by power than humility, by politics over people, by American exceptionalism and Christian nationalism over the unity of the global church and the reality of Christ as head and Lord of the global church. These are real threats to the witness of the church today. And these are birthed out of a lost love for God and for others. The Apostle Paul recognizes the importance of love in his letter to the Corinthians where he says, I may have the gift of prophecy. I may understand all secrets and know everything there is to know. And I may have faith so great that I can move mountains. But even with all of this, if I don't have love, I am nothing. Yes, we want our theology. We want to get our theology right. We want to have sound doctrine, but if we have those things and we lack a love for God and for others, then we will be ineffective and lifeless. But there's good news. God does not abandon his church. And so following the condemnation, there's an opportunity and a call for correction. There are three things that the church in Ephesus is called to, and I'm going to stick with the alliteration here with three R's. They need to remember, repent, and return. First is remember. It's a call to reflect, to go back and to recall the past. The Savior is saying, remember the way it used to be in your relationship with me, when all that you did stemmed as a result of my love for you and your love for me. Undoubtedly, this process of looking back is also a call to recognize the current condition. And so they're called to repent. The word repent means to change the mind or purpose, to change one's decision. It means to recognize one's previous decision, opinion, condition as wrong and to accept and move towards a new and right place, a new and right path in its place. And so repentance includes the confession of sin with a view of writing um, replacing the sin with something that is right. And third, they're called to return. Do the deeds you did at first. It's not a call for them to do more. It's not a call for them to earn their salvation. They've done plenty. But rather, it's a call to return to love being what is their primary motivation. And the warning is harsh. Removal of the lampstand or witness is the alternative. Jesus was and is saying, either go back to your first love or you will lose your light-bearing capacity. The church in Ephesus 
does not stand today. Its light has been snuffed out. They became so concerned with snuffing out the potential outside influence that the church eventually faded. City Church, the challenge for us this week is clear. We keep our purpose statement here simple. Love God, love others. Everything we do must flow out of our love for God and our love for all of humanity. And so we really need to examine ourselves and ask the question, am I loving God? Am I loving others? You see, it's not just about showing up to church every week and making sure that our theology is good. Those aspects are important to living out faith, yes. And that might be the starting point for some of us, but it cannot be the end game. In the past year, Kara, who leads our community outreach ministries, has facilitated a task force of city church members who've been taking the time to prioritize our partnerships both locally and globally. This is a group that has collectively come together, setting a vision and direction for how we as City Church can do better at loving others in our community. And we're getting closer to the fall. And as we get closer, we're going to be talking more about the relaunching of City Kids and Velocity. But these ministries cannot thrive without the church community investing their time to teach the next generation about Jesus. How can we expect the next generation to grow in love of Jesus if they're not seeing it from us? And so I want to challenge us this week to really ponder that question. Are we loving God? And are we loving others? This letter concludes with a wonderful promise. In the second half of verse 7, it says, To the one who is victorious, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I love this image because it stands in complete contrast to what has happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve lived in the garden in complete community with God, and yet they chose to break that community by eating from that tree of life. But in this promise, we see the image of the garden restored, and this time we're invited to eat from that tree of life. There's something about food and sharing a meal that communicates love. When you're visiting old friends or celebrating a holiday with family, there's a pretty good chance that there's a big dinner on that itinerary. One way that we can grow in our love for God as a community is to take communion together. On the night of Jesus' final meal, he knew that the man that would betray him would dine with him. He knew that Peter, who would deny him three times, would be at that meal, and he sat and dined with him. Moreover, at the beginning of that evening, Jesus took the time to wash the feet of each disciple before they sat down together to eat. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. If you're like me and you wear sandals in the summer or go barefoot, you've probably got dirty feet. And guess what? You're still invited to the Lord's table. This is a meal that as followers of Jesus, we're invited to participate in. And in this meal, we're reminded that Jesus lived, died, and rose so that we might know the depths of God's love for us and that we might know the hope 
that we have for all of creation being restored. And so every time we come to this table, know that it is not out of obligation or religious orthodoxy, but out of invitation, out of love. And every time that we come to this table, it's an opportunity to remember, repent, and return. Communion at City Church is open to anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So we extend that invitation to you now. Let us pray. Father, as we go to our homes and our work this coming week, by the power and promise of your Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear what you are saying to us in the things that happen to us and in the people we meet. Open our eyes to see the needs of people around us. Open our hands to do our work well, to help when help is needed. Open our lips to tell others the good news of Jesus and bring comfort, happiness, and laughter to other people. Open our minds to discover new truth about you and the world. Open our hearts to love you and our neighbors as you have loved us in Jesus. We thank you, God, for the gifts of the bread and of the cup, for sustaining us in hope every day of our lives. We pray for your strength to prepare us now for your service as we offer to you lives of witness and worship in the world that you have made. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.